This is the 9680 podcast, episode 14, The Cremonese War. Today, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. As explained in the last episode, Tacitus, a historian writing in the late 90s AD, goes into extreme detail about the battle fought between Vitellius and Vespasian in the back half of 69 AD. In this episode, I will summarize this chapter for you, and discuss in particular about the military habits of the Roman Empire. This will be a great exercise in understanding the things going through the heads of generals, subordinates, and soldiers alike. As a small disclaimer, since I'm only using this one source mostly, the specifics of the events may be slightly off. This is simply a reading of Tacitus in a way that informs us on military matters, not necessarily a recounting of the war exactly as it happened. I'm doing this because I want to keep the purity of what Tacitus is telling us. Tacitus is living in this time period, so he has some understanding of how these men would actually be thinking during these wars. I don't want to dilute the message that Tacitus is trying to send us, by using external sources. As accurate as they may be more accurate than Tacitus about the specifics of the events, I want to keep the consistent storytelling of Tacitus so that we get a consistent explanation of these characters. And for this episode, we will have particular characters to follow through the war. Namely, Vespasian, Vitellius, Mucianus, Valens, Caecina, and Antonius. Vitellius and Vespasian are the sitting and future emperor, respectively. Musianus is Vespasian's most important ally, and you could argue his colleague in imperial dignity. Valens and Caecina are two administrators of Vitellius, the two that are effectively ruling the empire for him. Antonius is a legate, so he leads a legion, and he's stationed in the Balkans. He will eventually be leading the Flavian armies to take Rome. I know it's a lot of names to start with now, but... Not to worry, only like half of them will make it out of this episode unscathed, and even less of them will remain relevant to the history of Rome. And we're really only going to focus on these men. As discussed in previous episodes, Vespasian was slow to revolt due to fear and distance. He was eventually stirred to revolt by the legions in Egypt and then his own troops in Judea. If Tacitus is anywhere close to accurate, Vespasian had at least nine legions in the east swear allegiance to him. This was more men than Vitellius had access to, but it's not possible for all or even most to make the assault against Vitellius personally. For one thing, there's still a war going on in Judea, so the troops there are staying under the guise of Titus. The troops in Syria and Egypt are also not easy to move, so Vespasian definitely had a long war ahead of him, having to levy a proxy army closer to Vitellius. And then of course, send them reinforcements. At a different period in time, this civil war could have taken decades to resolve. A specific example, in the 4th century, a similar standstill occurred with Constantine the Great and Licinius. The two men, each co-rulers of half the empire, just stared at each other for at least a dozen years until Licinius made enough mistakes for Constantine to overtake him. What made this war in particular not a decades-long brawl was the Danube legions in the Balkans. They right away swore allegiance to Vespasian, and no doubt their former support of Otho would lead them to support anyone who would rise up against Vitellius and in some ways avenging him, and this was one of the major fighting forces in the empire, and could rival the Rhine legions of Vitellius and turn the tides in favor of Vespasian. 
Tacitus tells us specifically that the first business of the campaign was to levy troops and recall the veterans to service. Typically, service in the Roman legions was a set time period, frequently around 20 years, and then the retired soldier would frequently be given a plot of land to start operating a farm on. This boosted the economy of conquered lands where these soldiers would be stationed, and give incentives for soldiers to complete their service, and it kept the legions filled with experienced soldiers. These veterans could usually be recalled to service at any time. This was written into their contracts. What I infer to be the plan was that these men would reinforce the provinces, allowing for higher quality troops to march to Vitellius. After all, the veterans were older, and they weren't reserves, so they wouldn't have been the best soldiers. New troops were also sought out at this point, likely to serve the same purpose. Deals were made with neighboring kingdoms to ensure the safety of the eastern provinces so that these troops could be extracted from them. On the eastern border of the Roman Empire, there are multiple small kingdoms and the massive Parthian Empire. The Parthians, at the best of times, had the resources to outright destroy the Roman Empire. Fortunately for Rome, they were usually not interested and had to spend their time managing their extremely diverse desert empire. The Parthians are responsible for some of the biggest and most disastrous defeats that the Romans had ever had. Crassus, Caesar and Pompey's complimentary triumvir, died in a campaign in Parthia. Mark Antony famously almost died alongside his army as they narrowly escaped his own failed campaign to the region. The Parthians were formidable and worthy successors to the Persians, so striking a deal with them was crucial to keep the eastern provinces safe. Obviously, it seems that these deals were a success, since Vespasian's rear was never endangered, but it seems unlikely that it would have been anyways. This, of course, allowed him to thin the ranks of the garrisons in the region and field a larger army. According to Tacitus, the provinces echoed with the bustle of preparing fleets, armies, and the implements of war. Nothing, however, was so vexatious as the raising of money. He then describes how Mucianus and Vespasian, appreciating that funding was the most important part of winning a war, would extort and rob everyone they could. They also put considerable amounts of their own personal fortunes into the war, but they were the ones primarily reimbursed by the victory. As for the regions that he controlled, Vespasian started ordering large cities to fund the war effort. The big cities focused on producing arms or mining valuable ores and minting money. This was crucial for Vespasian because he could then pay and arm his now massive army, and also to fund his empire. His empire, of course, was obviously lacking the funding of the imperial treasury in Rome, so he had to make his funds on his own. Antioch, in particular, was minting coins for the new regime. Vespasian personally toured his provinces and ordered the proper preparations everywhere he went. He bought the support of any and all allies he could with praise, positions, and titles. While Vespasian secured the safety and prosperity of his small empire, Mucianus took a number of troops into Turkey to pass through the Balkans and down into Italy. Tacitus writes that he has something like 15,000 troops with him, which I'm inclined to believe, but this number is definitely inflated to a degree. He traveled at a fair pace, but allowed the rumor of Vespasian's revolt and his own army to travel faster than him. He embellished the size and quality of his army, hoping to scare and impress anyone nearby of Vespasian's preeminence. At the same time, the Flavian fleets would harass and blockade the Vitellians in Italy, to instill confusion and make Vitellius unsure of where the main attack will come from. The main invasion, of course, will come from Illyricum, unknown to both Vitellius and Vespasian at the time. 
really quickly going to interject here i will be using danube balkan and illyricum to describe the same place they all technically describe different regions danube is the river that describes the frontier of the north and east of the Balkans. The Balkans, of course, describes just the entire region in modern terms, and Illyricum is specifically the province directly northeast of Italy. So they overlap in some ways, and I'll be using them interchangeably. Largely under the influence of a legate, Primus Antonius, two legions in the Balkans declared for Vespasian. Antonius was apparently a convicted criminal during the reign of Nero, who then became a legate of a legion by Galba. He was apparently quite brave and was a good speaker, both good traits for an ambitious soldier. Evidently, he was a talented leader and was able to convince troops and governors alike to agree with him at every stage. He seemed, in general, to be mostly on the lookout for his career advancement, caring little for, you know, anyone or anything else. Antonius ended up in charge of a portion of the armies due to the advanced age and the reluctance of the higher-ranking people in the region, in conjunction with his own conviction and tenacity. What Tacitus tells us about Vitellius at this time is so damning and at least partly hard to believe. He writes that Vitellius would travel around the home province with 60,000 of his closest friends and soldiers, ransacking the countryside and ruining the goodwill of the soldier and the common man all at once. Whatever Vitellius was actually doing, it was certainly not good, because by September there were mutinies in Italy. You heard me right, mutiny plural. Soldiers everywhere and anywhere were distancing themselves from the emperor. A specific incident is recorded in which the citizens of a town not far from Rome was violently responding to Vitellius's army, and they were massacred. It was around this time that Vitellius became particularly unpopular and personally incompetent. A result of this was that the administration of the empire was entirely put into the hands of Vitellius's two main administrators. Do you remember their names? These administrators were Valence and Caecina. Valence we have met before. He played the primary role in the civil war against Otho, leading Vitellius's army down from Germania into Italy. It seems to be the case that Caecina and Valence did not like each other, and they were constantly suspicious of the other's dealings. They may have been something like the co-rulers of the Roman Empire, but more than anything, they were rivals. The rivalry between the two went so far that when Vitellius dispatched the two administrators to fight the Balkan armies that had declared for Vespasian, they had to be dispatched in two separate armies. If I can be completely honest, there really is no reason to do this, beyond their personal dissension. If there was a particular strategy that is employed by splitting an army in two, then I can completely understand it, but the fact is that no strategy of any matter was employed. And for the purposes of defending Italy, this particular choice makes no sense. This is because both armies were sent to do the exact same thing, to defeat the Flavian armies in a pitched battle. They weren't working together to accomplish this. In fact, they were racing each other. No clever maneuvering, no encircling tactics were attempted. Neither general made attempts to draw out the enemy so that they could see if they made a mistake. It was entirely a decision predicated on the childish nature of the generals, that instead of fielding one large army to demolish the Flavians, two smaller armies were sent to do it separately, with no coordination between the two. It's the harsh reality of any and all wars that the personal conflicts of important men can cause subpar strategic moves to be made, or worse. This was the case here with poor old Vitellius. He has to split the men that he has into two armies that will act independently at best and antagonistically at worst. 
Of course, at the same time, Vitellius learned of the revolting legions in the Balkans. More accurately, he heard of the Legion. This is because the intel that he got said that but a single legion was rising up in Illyricum. This is the rough reality of imperfect information that the ancient generals would always get. The main game that the generals had to play was to take all the pieces of information that they could, combining it with precedent, and making the best choice possible for the situation and hoping for the best. Apparently as well, Vitellius attempted to play up his seeming advantage and suppressed any rumors that an organized revolt was successfully underway by deploying what seems to be kind of like a secret police in Rome. The problem with projecting to the world that you have nothing to fear, while actually being quite fearful, is that it makes it difficult to motivate people to help you, since nobody thinks you need it. Vitellius had to reach out to his legions in Gaul, Hispania, and Britannia to get them to come to Italy as quickly as possible, while also convincing the world that there was no danger at all. The result was a slow response from the provinces, allowing for the rapid punch maneuver from the Flavians to actually work. It seems that each province had their reservations about Vitellius, and they used his projection of power as an excuse to slow roll their army so they don't actually have to fight Vespasian. The result for Vitellius is that correspondence with his western provinces started to dry up, and support was not going to be coming for a while. If you think about it, the smart move for these governors in the provinces really is to keep your cards close to your chest. Governors who pledge soldiers to Vitellius may end up being murdered or removed from their provinces or thrown out of favor once Vespasian becomes emperor. But simply holding your soldiers for as long as possible until Vitellius wins pretty much never results in death or any punishment of any kind, since you never explicitly did anything against the emperor, as long as there's enough distance between you. So it makes perfect sense to slow roll your army. So, most provincials didn't pledge allegiance to Vitellius very quickly, and don't pledge allegiance to revolt very quickly in most cases. They usually just hopped on the side of whoever is winning, as late as possible. The only benefit to joining early in a revolt is that the earliest supporters got the largest part of the treasure, but also got the biggest punishments when it failed. It's a gamble. It's risky business. Join early, get handsomely rewarded or shamelessly murdered. Join late, get no punishment, no reward. If you ask me, I'd join late. It was in September as well that the Flavian leaders in the Balkans met up to discuss strategy. So far, the Vitalians have shown to have few allies, are rather reckless, and do not have an efficient and quality chain of command. The leaders in the Balkans met near the northeast of the Italian peninsula and debated how they should fight the campaign for Vespasian. The debate, apparently, was if they should invade Italy or simply blockade the northern entrance to the home province. Of course, Vespasian controlling Egypt and the east means that he could in part starve Italy, so blockading the province from the north would lead into an entire province-wide siege. It's a long play, but a fairly safe play. The heat that Vitellius would be under, in conjunction with the interfighting in his court, that we see with Caecina and Valence, would certainly lead to an armed conflict within the Vitellian camps. And if we can extrapolate from what will happen dozens of times in the future history of Rome, Vitellius would likely end up dead, maybe in a matter of months. Usually, the Italian would prefer Vespasian or a new emperor in command so that they could have their food restored, because ultimately they don't really care who's in charge, they just want to eat. So they would expel Vitellius, which usually means his death. Blockading would also allow the Flavians to hold the strategically valuable position in the mountains of northern Italy, while waiting for the larger imperial army to come from the east. 
Misiones is, after all, on his way with his massive amazing army. Holding the pass in the mountains of northern Italy is smart because the Balkan army is relatively small. So if the Vitellian allies do show up from Germania, Gaul, Hispania, or Britannia, they'll be coming from northern Italy and they will have a larger army than you. So if you want to hold out, it makes sense to do it in the mountain passes. I believe that if I were an ancient general, this is the type of maneuver I would have chosen. It's relatively safe, it's smart, slow, but with less glory. And it's with the glory that we see the alternative decision. The problem for the generals in the Balkans is that if they besieged Italy, then the victory over Vitellius would be a result of infighting or perhaps Musianus's imperial army. The reason why this is a problem for the men in the Balkans is because if one of them won the war instead, then they would be getting a massive payout, massive gains personally. The literal emperor would be indebted to them, and it would likely guarantee them a position close to the emperor and a massive payout over time. The ambitious men of the Balkans would then like to launch an invasion of Italy right away. No delay. Eyes closed, head first, can't lose. The way I've presented this makes it seem like the invasion idea is ridiculous, which it isn't entirely. Vitellius is currently calling armies from Britannia, Germania, and Hispania, and eventually they will show up. The problem with holding the passes is that you might be overrun, regardless of how strategically valuable they are. And the Flavians don't know that all of Vitellius' allies are slow to act and don't actually want to help him. For all they know, the armies are marching now. The Balkans only have two or three disposable legions, so fending off the Italian Vitellians and the reinforcement from the north trapped in the mountains is a recipe for disaster. The argument, then, is that an immediate invasion could knock Vitellius out of the war before his allies are mobilized. A kind of blitzkrieg maneuver. So, this was the question. Shall we hold the Alps till Musianus arrives, hoping to starve out the Vitellians, or do we invade Italy with a rather small army and hope to knock Vitellius out before his army becomes larger than ours? Antonius Primus was, of course, at this meeting and argued for the invasion. He was young, reckless, and ambitious, unlike most of the elderly statesmen that led the Balkans. He argued that Vitellius' haphazardous army and nonsensical command structure means he'll be easy to take out, but he also might not be easy to take out in the future. He was eventually able to win over the rest of the local Flavians, and two legions set out to Italy. It should be noted that the Balkans were, like the East, in a complicated situation with their border, but unlike the East, there were actually continuous invasions. So, a large contingent of the troops, likely larger than the fielded army, had to be left behind. Apparently, Vespasian himself wanted them to wait for Misianus. So in general, the invasion was a strange decision because Vespasian won't be very happy about them going against his orders, so how much of a payout are they really going to get? And we'll see that in future episodes. Regardless, it all started off with massive and rapid success, as is typical. Large cities in northern Italy were taken without a fight, and the Balkan legions had a foothold in the province. The Vitellians had only a skeleton troop fortifying the Italian cities, because in normal times, these cities had no need to be defended. Uh, for the most part, they wouldn't have even been walled. This minuscule contingent of troops holding northern Italy was easily overrun by an invading army. Really, they're just a police force. As is typical for these kinds of invasions, the initial success was gained more or less for free. The true difficulties would come when the imperial armies of Caecina and Valens showed up, and only then. However, the rapid success would have an effect on everyone in the region. After ambushing a few cohorts of Italian legions, two whole Italian legions switched sides to that of the Flavians. 
In general, this seems quite realistic and happened all the time. There is no reason for armies not to switch to the winning side at any time, and it's better to switch as early as you can. This is because the armies, if they lost a battle, might get massacred, and if they join in with the winning armies and then win a battle, they get part of the spoils. The Flavians have, after all, rapidly invaded Italy and won several skirmishes, so it seemed to all the soldiers on the ground that surely the Flavians will win the war handedly, no problem. So they decided to join now and get in with the spoils and get out of their way. The effect on these troops show that Antonius, as cutthroat ambitious as he is, had a good idea in invading Italy. It seems to work. Also, these legions that did switch were Galvus legions, so they likely held a hatred for Vitellius, so they were prone to rebel. So this wasn't some sort of exceptional maneuver by Antonius. He also got this for free. So now the army of the Flavians ballooned, and the likelihood of their victory was projected out into Italy. The first major city captured by the Flavians was Verona, and it was captured without a considerable fight. The army of Caecina, the first army dispatched by Vitellius, was on the scene, and fortified one of the satellite villages in the region. The army of Valence was approaching a bit slower, because I think at the time Valence was sick, and so his army left Rome much later. So for now, it was just Caecina versus Antonius. The particular village that Caecina had fortified himself in had a river to the rear and marshes to the sides, so he could be easily resupplied and never surrounded, meaning a siege was impossible. They'd have to sit on one particular side of the town and be easily counter-sieged. It was an excellent strategic position, and given that each army was comparable in size, the fortifications led to a considerable advantage for the Vitellians. They could sit and wait. Because of this, I entirely believe Tacitus when he says that the Flavians should have lost. And it only gets a bit worse for the Flavians before it gets better. After the initial successes in the war, the camp of the Flavian troops saw some difficulties. As far as I can tell, Antonius Primus, who was only one of three commanders of the army, orchestrated rebellions against the other two commanders. For those other two legates on staff, their troops suddenly found some arbitrary grievance with them, demanded their deaths, and then Antonius would swoop in, calm the troops down, and save the other legate, ensuring that they could safely flee the turbulent camp. The result was that Antonius was more or less in control of the entire army. The, the fact that this happened twice in rapid succession and massively increased the position of Antonius, it's either the case that he orchestrated them or allowed them to happen. And, of course, he did this to get full control over the armies. For another thing, since we're only going from Tacitus here, it could be the case that Antonius only got control of the legions slowly over time throughout the campaign, and maybe Tacitus is just wrapping that all up into a single story on a single day, when in fact it may have been more complicated and long-term than is presented with Tacitus, but that's not too important. The fact is that Tacitus believes that he orchestrated the rebellion so he could have more power. So this is a lesson for understanding Antonius. You might not think happens in these ancient battles is that even with unending resounding success, you could still face a mutiny and other troubles like these two other legates. They had done nothing wrong up to this point. 
And speaking of mutinies, you better get used to them. When an entire empire and dozens, dozens of legions are involved, single pitched battles aren't really a deciding factor in civil wars. The main way in which armies win civil wars is to have more troops defect to them, and they overwhelm their opponent. The pitched battle may determine the end of a civil war, but it is the defection of legions that determine the outcome of that battle. We'll see this happen dozens of times in the crisis years of the 3rd century Rome. If we ever get to it, you'll hear about it then, but it's a story for another time. For now, the outwards projection of power into northern Italy from the Flavians caused another defection from the Vitellians, this one more consequential. The imperial fleet in Ravetta, Ravenna in northeastern Italy defected to the Flavians. The sailors were mostly Balkan, so they wanted to side with their countrymen, plus Vespasian seemed to be winning the war so far, and they wanted to get in on it. There was a peaceful transition of power amongst the fleet to Flavian sympathizers, and their defection was declared. The geography now gets a bit important, and I'll post a relevant map on the subreddit, but I'll explain it the best I can for now. Verona, the city that was captured by the Balkan legions, is in northern Italy, right in the center. This was the major city held by the Flavians, which gave them full control of the northern passes to Gaul and to Illyricum. Of course, far south and on the west side of the Italian peninsula was Rome itself. Ravenna was about a fifth of the way down the eastern side of the peninsula. What's important about this is that the Ravenna fleet now gave full control of the Adriatic and by extension the entire eastern half of the Mediterranean to Vespasian. It also meant that Caecina was kind of surrounded. The only supply and escape route available to Caecina was to the southwest, directly back towards Rome. He had no tactical maneuvers to go around one side or the other, the Flavians, because to one side was mountains and to the other was the men of the fleet. This means that the Vitellians only really controlled about 70% of the Italian peninsula, and their allies in North Africa, uh, Gaul, Britannia, and Hispania were wavering in support. This means that the Vitellian reach was really collapsing and the war was about to be won by Vespasian. Really, only the armies of Caecina and Valens were withstanding. And that brings us to Caecina. Caecina was posted in his fortress, safely secured by its strategic positioning and fortifications. He had men from six different legions. Uh, certainly none of these legions were even close to full strength. I'd argue he had about three legions worth of men. It was an army equal-ish in size to the Flavians, but Caecina isn't per particularly loyal to Vitellius, or to anyone. Caecina is obviously ambitious and cutthroat, similar to Antonius. He'll do whatever he has to get power, and he'll do whatever he has to to keep it. What it seems that Caecina foresees is the end of Vitellius. The army he faces is beatable, sure, but there are at least two larger armies coming for him, and it's only a matter of time. He also has to worry about his rival Valens and the possibility of Vitellius being murdered, which, like, it could happen any day. He was cornered, he was outgunned, and he was terrified. Caecina is a survivor, and so he does the most logical and also the most illogical thing. He declares for Vespasian. Declaring for Vespasian now is the best idea for him, because it'll mean that when his troops eventually lose to the Vespasian armies, he might not get killed by the Flavians. But it's a bad idea because his troops don't want to rebel. He called together his advisors and carefully explained to them the situation. They were cornered, they had no more allies, and they were running low on supplies. The time was now to declare for Vespasian, and maybe they could all live. They started to tear down the banners and images of Vitellius and sent for Antonius to announce their defection. 
But what Caecina did not consider was that at least half of the men under his control were the legions of Germania Inferior. The legions that personally elevated Vitellius. They were literally the ones who marched down to Italy and defeated Otho. They have reaped the most of the rewards, and knew they were in for the worst punishment if they lost the war. They had to stick with their puppet em emperor, no matter the end. Plus, these legionnaires would have been more or less undefeated, so they probably felt overconfident. We must also consider that the average legionnaire didn't know the depth of the strategic situation. It wasn't explained to them, and they might not have fully grasped it. They would only have felt like Caecina was defecting for no particular reason, when they should instead just all go to Antonius' army and destroy them right now. They couldn't understand the fact that they were cornered, losing allies, and losing supplies. Vitellius's Germanic legions under Caecina put back up the images of Vitellius and threw Caecina in chains. The troops, with their commander in chains, retreated to a town called Cremona. Cremona, crucially, is in the northwest of Italy, pretty much directly west of Verona. What this did is it opened up the passages to Gaul and Germania and opened up a bit more land for the Vitellians. Really, it was the best choice to go. It gave them more control of the Italian peninsula. It sacrificed control of the eastern side of the peninsula, but gave them control of the west side. Antonius was thus in a bind. Caecina's troops were fleeing and could be attacked on route or besieged in Cremona, but there's more to consider. At this point, he knew that Valens had left Rome. He also knew that Valens was the favorite of Vitellius, definitely now since Caecina rebelled, and will more than likely stay loyal to him. Also, Valens is quite a good general. He led the legions that were under Caecina's control, so they will gladly support him. The problem was, then, that if Valens hooked up with Caecina's soldiers, or did some kind of pincer attack encircling the Flavians with Caecina's and his own troops, that could spell a disaster for the Flavians. Plus, if he simply hooked up with the soldiers of Caecina, then they would have an army that would be somewhat unbeatable to Antonius's men. Antonius also got news of an army coming from Germany, so he was about to push west into Italy, chasing an equal-sized army to his own, while also trying to beat two armies, one from the north and one from the south, to the punch. If he failed, and was outmaneuvered or outlasted, he would be overwhelmed and destroyed. An encirclement of Antonius would perhaps have meant the end of the Flavian Revolt, since their forward momentum would have been annihilated, and their Balkan legions destroyed. Vitellius would have full control of northern Italy, and many troops would declare for him as a result, and his allies would more likely rush in to support him, because he seems like he's going to win. The army of Mucianus could not handle the massive army that would be under Valence and their strong strategic position, and it would be a standstill. That would have been a very interesting story to witness, and I really don't know how that would have ended. Maybe we would have seen a multi-year conflict of attrition. Anyways... Antonius chased after Caecina's men at the fullest speed. Caecina's men safely arrived in Cremona, and Antonius followed, getting to Cremona in only two days. Quite incredible. The scouts and the cavalry sent out to the countryside around Cremona to collect supplies was engaged by a contingent of the Vitellian army. The cavalry and the scavengers started to get overwhelmed by the surprise attack by the Vitellians. But Antonius riled up his legions and sent out a relief army to save them. It was a close and hard-fought battle with many casualties on both sides, but in the end, the Vitellians were driven off into Cremona.
and the Flavians that were able to make it to the battle barely survived. However close and hard fought it was, the battle was a victory for the Flavians, and they were able to regroup, holding only four miles from the city of Cremona. The troops of Antonius were settling to rest before the upcoming battle, but they were restless and they sought out a victory. They were high off their success and were obsessed with getting a full victory. Antonius seems to be losing control of his troops at this point because he allows them to convince him to launch an attack before they've rested, after they fought a battle, before the cavalry could even recover. Maybe this rapid attack was a good idea because the defenders would have certainly not expected them to do it. But it's a risky play to run into battle shorthanded when they have the time to take the night and invade in the morning. What's worse, the troops were clamoring to invade because they suspected that the Vitellians would surrender in the morning. This is their motive for invading now and not waiting till the morning. They feared the surrender of the Vitellian troops because if they were allowed to storm the city while the troops inside still opposed them, they would be allowed to plunder the city. This is rather horrific that the troops would attack a city that they know is about to declare for them just so that they could raid it. Any good leader would try to stop this, but Antonius is losing control of his troops, and perhaps he just sought out the glory and plunder in the city for himself anyways, and maybe he wanted to bring his troops to his side by promising such a thing. To me, it seems like it's a ploy by Antonius to make his troops singularly loyal to him, since that seems to be his major concern. In reality, he doesn't differ much from Vitellius. The Flavians marched to Cremona, and it seems as though the Vitellians amazingly came out to meet them. Tacitus is as baffled by this as I am. He and I can agree that the Vitellians should have posted themselves in Cremona and waited out the night, but in the end, the battle did start in the fields outside the city of Cremona at something like 9 o'clock at night. The two sides fought through the night, and Tacitus makes specific remarks about the nature of these conflicts. Every man was equipped with the same weapons and the same armor. Each army was dressed the same way, the colors were intermixed, the signals and strategies were all the same. The battle was an absolute slog, no advantage to either side, lasting the entire night. No side had a distinct advantage, and aside from attrition, there's no obvious way of winning the battle. Ripped straight from Lord of the Rings, the tide turned at the sunrise. It rose in the east, of course, to the backs of the Flavians, in the eyes of the Vitellians. Antonius rallied his men, harassed his opponents, hoping to capitalize on the now-lit battlefield. He foresaw a path to victory. The best advice I can give you if you find yourself in a pitched battle in the ancient world is to exploit any small advantage that you find. Some of the legions under Antonius were Syrian in origin, and a tradition that they picked up was to greet the sun as it rose in the morning. So, when the sun rose and the Vitellians started to be blinded, what they did see was half of the Flavian army turning to greet the east. The east, of course, is where the Balkans were, and the direction in which the relief army of Musianus would come. The rumor then arose, instigated and promoted by the Flavians, is that Musianus had arrived, and that a massive army was ready to support the Flavians and crush the Vitellians. Everyone had been fighting the entire night, so a surprise introduction of a third army of fresh soldiers would massively sway the fight. This was of course just a rumor, Musianus was months away. So no retreat was called by the commanders, but the Vitellian troops 
wavered and stuttered just for a second as a response to this. This was the small advantage that Antonius was looking for, and he announced a massive and fully invested push into the enemy lines. Blinded and stunned and confused, the Vitellians started to be massacred and their line collapsed. The battle was won, and truly, so was the war. Full control of northern Italy was in the hands of the Flavian, and that supposed German army was not heard from again. Now, the armies of Antonius marched onto Cremona. I said that the battle and the war were won, and in a sense they were, but the work of Antonius was not complete. There was a large contingent of Vitellians held in Cremona, and it wouldn't be easily taken. What's important to note is that this region was also the site of Otho's defeat. Bedriacum, only about 30 kilometers away, was the site of the Othonian defeat. The area was thus, after civil wars, heavily fortified. A siege was settled in, and the city started to get bombarded and relentlessly attacked by the Flavians. The Flavians were being slaughtered by the defenders, getting picked off by missiles sent from the soldiers in the ramparts. The famous Testudo, the tortoise formation, was taken up by the invaders. The missiles bounced off the shields of the Testudo and finally allowed the Flavians to punch their way into the city. At first, the trickle was slow of men jumping into the city, but soon enough, the whole of the legions followed them into the city. The soldiers in the city panicked, running through the streets, trying to find a way to survive, and started to get a bit massacred. Caecina was released from his chains by his men in hopes that he could bargain on their behalf for their safety. The troops of Cremona surrendered, and walked out to the Flavians, unarmed, preparing themselves for the possibility of slaughter. Caecina refused to argue for anyone's behalf, and was lucky enough to be plucked out of the crowd by Antonius and sent away to Vespasian for judgment. We will eventually hear from Caecina again in about a decade. The soldiers were fortunate enough to survive, and they were spread out into the Balkans, and they would eventually be disbanded within a year. For the citizens of Cremona, the fate was far worse. Antonius was unwilling to control his legions, and allowed for an absolute disaster. The inhabitants were slaughtered, raped, captured, and sold into slavery. The entire city was plundered for everything it could offer. The troops were supposedly in Cremona for four full days, stripping the city bare, leaving it in flames, and ash as they left. Antonius made no attempt to stop it and reveled in the plunder. The concentration of blood in the soil and the stench of the corpses made the region inhospitable for the army and they were forced to leave. One of the two Vitellian armies was now destroyed and Valence was now the only military force under Vitellius's control. I think Vitellius was now completely in shock. He made no particular moves in the war. He just sat around, depressed in Rome. His political spin on the defeat of Caecina was the emphasis on the betrayal of Caecina. This deflected blame away from the defeat of Vitellius and kept him afloat for the time being, kept everyone from rebelling directly under him. Valens had been pretty slow in entering the war and traveling in Italy. He was traveling slowly, indulging his vices. He had entertainers and concubines and luxuries. He was enjoying his slow march north into Italy, while Caecina's army was being pummeled. During his slow march, he heard of the capture of Verona, the defection of the Ravenna fleet, and most importantly, the eventual defection and defeat of Caecina. 
Tacitus argues that if Valence wasn't slowed by his own luxuries, he would have been able to meet up with Caecina's troops in Cremona to pincer the Flavians. The plan that Valence took up as a response to the war was to sail to Gaul, raise an army there, turn around, and reinvade Italy to eject the current invaders of Italy. This is a wild plan, and obviously failed. Valence sailed to Gaul, landed in the south of France, and was harassed by the Gallic legions, because they supported Vespasian. The men in charge of southern Gaul had no love for Vitellius. Valence's men were caught off guard, they were defeated, Valence was captured by the Flavian sympathizers, and in the last days of Vitellius, he was executed by them. So now, there are no real Vitellian-fielded armies. Antonius is free to march to Rome in Italy. And Tacitus's language, while talking about Antonius at this point, is notable. He describes the movement of Antonius through Italy almost the exact same way as he did with Vitellius. He describes both of them as pillaging Italy as if they're foreign armies, having pride and indulging excess. Antonius promoted the most reckless and dangerous soldiers, promoted killing the administrators of enemy armies, and allowed his soldiers to plunder to their heart's content. He was single-minded in getting his troops personally loyal to him and letting them do whatever they wanted so he could increase his power. The cold of winter caused problems for this advancing army. Supplies wore thin and the baggage and wounded men slowed them down. He was encouraged by his men to wait for Musianus to enter Italy because Vespasian's going to be mad at him. But Antonius wanted to march into Rome personally, to claim all the glory for himself. Men in his army were writing to Mucianus and Vespasian, complaining about his horrible posture and disorganization of Antonius. It was becoming dangerous for his troops to travel through Italy. It was hostile territory for them, and winter was setting in. Mucianus wanted to stop the army of Antonius, because he also wanted to be the one who marched on Rome. And it was the right thing to do for Antonius to settle down and wait out Vitellius. Antonius sent rude letters to Vespasian, complaining about Mucianus, but it seems to me that Vespasian always held Mucianus in the higher esteem. He supported his colleague, and he didn't like Antonius. Antonius nonetheless marched towards Rome, but he was reasonable in sending letters to Vitellius encouraging his abdication. He ensured to Vitellius that he would live out the rest of his days in peace and luxury if he abdicated. This was smart, since it could help Antonius' reputation and character to end the war bloodlessly and to not march on Rome as an invading army like Mucianus and Vespasian are telling him not to do. It would also guarantee an immediate end to the conflict. So he could have his glory of entering Rome first, while also not entirely defying Mucianus and Vespasian, because he had a peaceful end to the war, which is what they would like. As you recall in the last episode, Vitellius attempted to surrender, was stopped by his men, and then his men were spooked into massacring the Flavian supporters in the city. In response, Antonius marched his soldiers into Rome. Vitellius was killed, and the city was taken for Vespasian. The citizens of Rome watched as three different battles took place in the city, as Antonius had split up his army into three, and the defenders split themselves up accordingly. The spectators to the battles would cheer for one side or another, switching with the tide of battle. Well, and while the battle was underway, the spectators and soldier alike would drag out and murder those who supported the wrong side, while those who supported the right side would jump in and plunder as they pleased. The city was in a way sacked by both the soldiers and its own inhabitants. There was blood and corpses everywhere in the streets, and taverns of the capital of the largest multicultural empire in the world. 
the senators, Flavians, and Domitian hid throughout the battle, and only appeared after the battle was entirely over and the Flavians had finished their plundering and murdering, and peace was assured. Domitian presented himself, climbing out of the temple he was hiding in, and greeted the troops that hailed his father emperor. They cheered Domitian, and hailed him as Caesar, the title for junior vice-emperors. Now, finally, a Flavian emperor sat in Rome. Peace was underway, but more turmoil was to come. Mucianus would appear shortly, and Vespasian not long after, and the attitude of Antonius, and the boldness of Domitian, would define the early reign of Vespasian. I want to conclude this episode with some lessons that we've learned. The fantasy of the pitched battle is just that. The most important elements in this particular war and most wars in Roman history were the high-level strategic moves made by the commanders of the armies and the personalities of those commanders. The ambition and recklessness of Antonius and the might of his Balkan legions paid off in spades as it let him win the war. The defection of troops, projection of power, and mental aspects of battle are just as important as any strategic ability. The fact that legions and navies defected to Vespasian are probably the only reason Antonius succeeded. The main element for winning a war are the money and your image. You have to get people to defect to you, and you have to pay those who support you. That is how you win a civil war. Vespasian, and in a way Antonius, played their parts perfectly. These are the lessons to learn. Find an advantage, exploit it. Project your power outwards, even where you have none. Take strategic positions, and wait for an opportunity to strike. Wait for your enemy to make the mistake. This is how to win the war. Antonius is definitely more reckless than someone like Caesar, but all the choices he made were more or less logical. If you can accept that he was limited by his own imposed need to have all the glory. Finally, I would like to explain the title of this episode. There is no name for this particular part of the Civil War. The entire year is called the Year of the Four Emperors, but within that we have two separate civil wars and also that single day where Galba's murdered. And I decided, for the sake of my memory, to refer to it as the War of Cremona. The defeat of Otho was adjacent to Cremona. So, Vitellius's sole reign started there. The defeat of Caecina's troops was also at Cremona, and essentially guaranteed the end of Vitellius. So, Cremona bookends Vitellius's reign. So for now, this will be known as the War of Cremona to me and the future of the podcast, Stay tuned. The next episode, which will be released alongside this one, will have updates for the future of the podcast. For now though, if you want to ask me questions or leave suggestions for the podcast, head on over to my de facto website, the 96AD subreddit. Just head on over to reddit.com slash r slash 96AD. You can find the link in the podcast description. I'll be posting updates about the podcast there, and I'll respond to anybody who posts there or messages me. Another thing you'll find on this subreddit is the map of Northern Italy that I will be posting for today if you want to get an understanding of the geography of the region. Finally, a thing you'll find on the subreddit is a PayPal donate button. This is not required or expected. This podcast will remain free and I don't aim to profit. However, donations will cover the cost of production and will support me, a student, who is attempting to study, work, and produce this podcast all at once.